1: The doctor is in. All right, Dr. Bittar, we, we just finished watching the Olympics here, and I guess around the world, all over the place they were watching it. I don't know if you even had a chance, because as busy as you are taking care of people all over. Uh, so uh, did you get any Olympic fever this past couple of weeks?
0: Yeah, actually, I watched, um, I watched a couple of the events. I watched uh, a little bit of swimming. I saw some of the martial arts and uh, um, ping pong and tennis since my son plays tennis
1: and all that. So. Yeah, you know, when I, when it was in Atlanta in 96, I actually saw some of the table tennis, as they call it, ping pong, live and in person, and I saw some gymnastics when it was in Atlanta. Did you, those years, you were around. Did you, did you go to the Atlanta Olympics at all?
0: I did not. Unfortunately, no, I didn't.
1: Miss that. But, yeah, it was, it was fun. Super Don and I had a good time. We were comparing notes on some of the things we watched. And some of the stories that were highlights for me, one was that Michael Phelps, the most amazing swimmer in the history of the sport, used this thing called cupping, and the, the Skep Ducks went apoplectic over it. And how dare he use something, and he's a gold medal winner, and what are we going to do now? <laughs> and there's no evidence it works. And what is, what, How many gold medals does he have?
0: Yeah, yeah, Somebody needs to look at his gold medals, have them count. Ask them if they know how to count, and they can count <laughs> and see how many gold medals he won, and that's the enough proof in the pudding. This is a, you know, it's so great that you brought this up. I love it whenever they say that there's no scientific data to prove it works. You know how many times I've heard that? There's no scientific data that proves that what we do works, yet we've got patient after patient, hundreds and hundreds of patients, before and after, on video, telling their own story, but there's no proof that it works. Show me the proof that a study, the results from a study work.
1: Mm-hmm. And here he
0: he was- what's happened with so many of those people that have published those uh, studies. Some of them are in jail, some of them, you know, they've <laughs> built their whole platform of writing their thesis and writing their papers on um references that are based on other papers and those references that they use based on other papers those papers were falsified where the data was just extrapolated out of the you know the ethers i mean just randomly just pulled it out of nowhere
1: sure but it's it sounded scientific and it was based on some kind of drug theory so um even even better though you probably haven't heard about this we just covered this last hour the other guy, you know, there's like two, two people that are just so far beyond the field. Michael Phelps was one, and on land, it was Usain Bolt from Jamaica. The fastest man, 100 meter, 200 meter. This guy's amazing. And it turns out he had a hamstring injury in July, just one month prior to the Games. What did he do? He went to see a homeopathic physician in Germany, who he's been seeing since he was 16 years of age. Homeopathy, and a month later, he wins gold in everything wow. he enters. Wow. <laughs> Again, Skep Ducks, apoplectic, how will we counter that? It's not really a gold medal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unbelievable,
1: huh? Yeah, it, it, it's... A, it's amazing, and I think more of these stories are going to be coming out as you hear that the people with with money or that are famous, they're you know, they're, not everyone. Some of them end up dying because of the best treatment that money can buy, but a lot of folks wake up and go, you know what? I've got access to other things. I'm going that way. And obviously, he's been cared for by a physician in Germany who uses acupuncture, herbs, and homeopathy since he was a teenager. That's pretty
0: amazing. Yeah, I mean that when when people ask about proof, there's. If that's not enough proof, I
1: don't know what is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when people ask me if I'm a doctor, Dr. Batar, and I always say I'm a homeopath, and if they look at me squirrely-eyed, I say I'm a bush doctor, right? Which, if you're from Jamaica, you know what that means. Your medicine comes from the natural world, and that's primarily what you do, and they immediately understand what that is. But uh, we've lost concept of that, that medicine could actually come from the natural world and be superior to that which is synthesized by man.
0: that's That's... Really, really uh, a good answer, but I think my answer is better when I'm <laughs> when I'm asked if I'm a doctor.
1: <laughs> what do you say? Go ahead, Robert. Ask me. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, uh, uh, Doctor Bittar. Are you a doctor? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> My answer no, no i'm not. not you know the the other thing i'll say is in the if you mean a teacher one who teaches you how to heal then yes i'll take it but not in you know that so-called official capacity a title of no ability i mean nobility title of no i'm not sure which one it is but i don't have one of those degrees
0: but you know it's funny robert when i was in the army um we had to uh, this was right before I became the chairman of the emergency department at the Farming Community Hospital in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. We had to take we had to go to these conferences, and they're basically uh, military conferences for physicians. And then they send you out to other civilian uh, conferences. And this is it's more administrative than anything else. But there's some things about trauma medicine, and not not necessarily how to deal with trauma medicine, but in other words, not clinical, but more the unique logistics when you're dealing with trauma medicine and that type of stuff. So um, since I was the head of the PES and I was getting ready to take over the ER, I had to go and I had uh, some of my NCOs with me, non-commissioned officers with me. And this was in Chicago, and we went to um, one of the sports clubs afterwards to just get something to eat. It was kind of late, and all the restaurants had already closed. It was in a suburb of Chicago, and that was the closest place for us. And we started playing pool, and we ordered some... some Food and um, a couple of girls came up, and it was so funny. You know, they were asking what we did, and the, my soldiers and I were kind of explaining. And um, one of them, one of them, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but one of them basically asked what I did. And before, there was, a, there was, I think, four girls, and a couple of them were went over to the bar to get something to drink. And one of the girls asked me what I did. And before I could answer, one of my NCOs said, He's a doctor. She wouldn't believe it, you right? know? And I didn't say anything. Right. And then the rest of the girls come up and she said the the, the girl said, you know, the, one of the other girls said, well, So what do you do? And I said, I'm a drug dealer. Nobody <laughs> questioned that. I said I was a drug dealer and they all took it, did no more questions. But when the first girl had asked me that, and the other person and she had said I was a doctor, she argued and argued. Probably for thirty seconds she denied, it, you know, and I didn't say anything. I didn't respond at all. But when I said I'm mm-hmm. a drug dealer they bought it, hook line and singer, nobody even questioned it. So that means that I look like a drug dealer, and I don't look like a doctor. I just prefer to say I'm well,
1: a doctor. And, and and the the irony there, of course, is you're one of the guys that, that in the medical profession is one of the least in dealing drugs of any of them out there, uh, and yet those that look so kind and gentle and loving, dealing the drugs, doing the greatest danger, doing the greatest damage in many cases. So as they say, one of the first things we learn as a kid, one of those stories, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs>
0: sure whether that was a compliment
1: or an insult. I'm pretty sure I was an insult, but I'll, I'll take it. No, down. no, no. It, well, listen, <laughs> you, you meet Dr. Batar; He's a solid guy. You're going to think he's with the UFC or wrestling or something. And you can come meet him and me and many others, Ty Bollinger, at the Ultimate Live Symposium from The Truth About Cancer. And that's October 14th, 15th, and 16th, the Gaylord Texan in Dallas. And tickets are almost sold out. So, folks, if you want to attend that and see Dr. Batar and meet him, uh, please uh, plan to make your – well, you're going to have to go on and buy tickets right away. So there are links up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com to do just that. Uh, now, I- interesting in terms of celebrity, like these athletes or other things, uh, using other other people that use this guy, Bono. Super who was the other athlete? I think uh, I remembered um, – oh, oh, Boris Becker, that great tennis player from Germany. And those are just right. a few names that people know about. But this is a story about Chris Christopherson. Do you remember Chris Christopherson, Dr. Batar? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, he was a country singer and an actor, a uh, musician, and he, he had a very own, unique voice. Very unique yeah, voice, and he was an in, for... what was the, some of the movies he was in? I, I think um, the uh, the Vampire series with Wesley Snipes. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was yeah, in Blade. Uh, mentor, Blade, yeah. Yep.
1: But he's been around a crotchety old guy. He's like a guy that's like salt of the earth, tells it to you straight, right? And he has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so he kind of dropped out of a lot of things recently until recently we found out that he maybe didn't have Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's disease isn't what the medical profession thinks it is. And this was a report uh, on a a talk show up there, I think in, was it Minnesota somewhere? But basically, he had what they call iatrogenic Alzheimer's. He was on medicine for neurological issues that was actually causing him to worsen and to manifest the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And when he finally figured it out and started undoing the drugs, stopping the drugs, the most neurotoxic medications he was on, he started reversing his symptoms. And now he's actually realizing, hey, maybe I don't have Alzheimer's, or maybe what Alzheimer's is... Is caused by modern medicine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that happens all the time. I mean, that iatrogenic component of uh, many of these medications, the side effects. And, you know, this is one of the secrets that Robert, you and I talked about before Mm -hmm. Uh, secrets of getting people better is just to get them off the medication. In fact, when patients come to me, their medication, that's really an easy fix for me because I know that, of course, you know, don't take this. For anybody listening out there, I don't want to stop your medication because it can be side effects taking take stopping your medication. But done in the right manner and with the right balance, with the right support, that's one of my secrets is how to make a person feel better is just to get them off their medication and wean them off. Certain medications, you have to wean them off because the body's created a dependency. Certain medications, you can't stop cold turkey. Certain medications, not only do you have to wean the person off, but you have to replace it with something that can help the body adjust. And right. The vast majority of problems that people have are because of medications are causing a disruption and blocking the flow of whatever the metabolic process is. Whereas natural substances, typically, not always, but typically, are not inhibiting a process, but they're enhancing a process.
1: Right. Um, right.
0: So. That's one of the you know key characteristics. I think that uh, at least in our practices, my goal is to get them off medication, and it's not because mm-hmm. I'm so anti-medication. I'll use whatever medication I need, but the problem is the medication when you use it for more than ten days. You know, we weren't born with a deficit of whatever type of drug they're providing us for. So yeah, I'll there use is no drug I need to to get a short-term response, but long-term, mm-hmm. it's you're creating dependency and you're creating more side effects. And yes. there more people that are on drugs today for side effects of other drugs than they are for the primary issues that been put on.
1: Very profitable industry based on that uh, technique. And uh, Chris Christopherson found out firsthand. Uh, when we come back, there's another layer to the Christopherson Alzheimer's discussion. Could it be a chronic low-level infection, Lyme disease? Is that possible? And what does Dr. Batar think of that? We're going to talk about that when we come back from this break as Dr. Batar answers the question of Alzheimer's and maybe other questions if we can get to them because there's a lot he's catching up on. We'll see if we're patient enough with him tonight. Get that joke patient. Haha. <laughs>
0: um, can you repeat the part of
1: the stuff where you said all about the uh, things? It's the Robert Scott Bell show. Robert will be right back.
0: making sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert.
1: Dr. rashi Advanced Medicine, com. Also, his book, incredible, international bestseller, and it's translated into a lot of languages now. The nine steps to keep the doctor away, a lot of the information you can find there. And In fact, and one of the things I wanted to get to on the Christofferson story, Dr. Battar about his iatrogenic Alzheimer's, they're saying there might have been an infectious basis for it because he was put on antibiotics, he seem to have a, a marketing uh, improvement. And we've talked about opportunistic infections, but Lyme disease, it's it's a nasty, deeply embedded situation that you also can't put on antibiotics for life and expect them to do well forever.
0: Well, that's exactly right, Robert. So the, You know, this is like one of those things where um, temporarily um, things may appear to be better compared to what what's going to happen long term. So with the limes, with the spirochetes, um, in general, first of all, that's considered the great masquerader. Even the CDC says that um, they estimate there's about 10 million cases of spirochetes out there. Uh, I'm sorry, about a million cases of uh, people with Lyme disease out there. But they say that to their best estimates, it's probably more like 10 million um, I suspect it's probably even more than that. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, this is 10 million, and they estimate it's probably 100 million. That's right, about a third of the right. population. Um, and I suspect it's probably even more than that. But when you look at the symptoms that Lyme's causes, I mean, pretty much is all-inclusive of every pathogenic process out there. I mean, I don't think there's any any symptom that's, that can't be not related back to uh, to Lyme's. So from that perspective, it's... Um, being the bring the great masquerader it's really difficult to even say that the person had limes. and from what I remember uh, I believe all his tests were negative anyway. I, I don't know whether it did the
1: yeah well it all, wasn't all conclusive tests. but again, this is so problematic for so many. the question is in your opinion, your perspective is this another one of the opportunistics but just to a deeper level?
0: Oh absolutely the, the limes is, is definitely falls into the opportunistic and under the third t- uh, toxicity absolutely. Um, and the, as far as the depth of it or how deep it really goes, you know, you can have a bacteria or a virus or you can have anything that can be undiagnosed and appear to be deep-rooted, whereas, in fact, it's a pretty superficial thing. It's just stuck missed. So I don't place greater weight on a bacteria or a virus or a spirochete or a fungus or a parasite or anything else greater than any others. Um, I just include them all within the same, but we have to basically address them all. In fact, it's so funny you're bringing this up right now because um, right before getting on the radio, I was with one of my staff members uh, discussing with her uh, one of the newer technologies that we're using. And because we know that our friends, um, we have certain friends that listen, in high and yes. low places, yes. I'm not going to talk about uh, some, of these, some of these therapies, but uh, it, it was actually discussing when to hit the opportunistics in our regular protocol for treating um, one specific type of chronic uh, immune disorder that we deal with and uh, kind of strategizing it based on when we're doing the IVs to to um, potentiate the results of the therapy. And so we were talking about, I had basically divided up the opportunistic into three categories. One was bacteria viruses. One was, um, uh, Fungus and spirochetes, and one was parasites. And I, you know, I could probably put spirochetes with the with the uh, parasites, but I just sometimes with the with the parasites you can have a really really hard die off, uh, as you can really with uh, the spirochetes as well. So I just kind of divided them both up um, into two different categories. So the, the, these three different categories. The reason for dividing them into three categories is because I want to hit each one on a different day. Because if you hit somebody with a therapy that would be effective on the same day for all those five components can you imagine the diet from bacteria viruses parasites, mycoplasma oh, and it'd yeast,
1: be yeast, you know,
0: and parasites i mean it's just it's gonna hit you pretty hard and so that's the only reason i divided it up so um coming back to the point i don't think that we should divide anything into a greater or, or lesser or get more weight to one specific type of opportunity and a lesser weight to another one coming back to chris Gustafson's story you know, the, the, there's always that initial um, improvement, right. uh, just from stopping the treatments, you know, or from whatever mm-hmm. they were doing. And then, so it could have been, it could have been uh, definitely a decrease in sparking counts for the antibiotic.
1: Sure. And long long term, Dr. Batar, we would have to assess for heavy metals, mercury yeah. in particular, when we're dealing with. Uh, Alzheimer's-like or, or even a, a dementia of any kind. As you've talked about, Absolutely. autism in childhood, Alzheimer's in the older ages, and what's in between, anything goes. All right, folks, we got a couple of more segments here, Advanced Medicine. Each and every week we kick off the week with Dr. Rashid Bittar. Back after this. The information is
0: so good. It requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show.
1: We've been covering the uh, Christopherson strange recovery, as they're calling it, from Alzheimer's. Wait, was it caused by the drugs? Was it cured by an antibiotic? Was it Lyme disease? And, of course, we're not here to say it's just one and not the other. There's always a combination of of impact, environmental and otherwise, deficiencies, etc., we've been covering, Dr. Batar, But I don't want to leave it too soon if we've got a few things we need to relate first
0: yeah well, I just was going to say that the temporary benefit that you know he experienced when start the starting the use of the antibiotics, um, no doubt that there is going to be a positive impact on decreasing the burden of the opportunistic pathogen whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. but then you have to look at the long term health um, long term gut health uh, you're going to actually promote the opportun- other opportunistic things to come in because you're going to kill off the good flora and then you're going to allow for now secondary other infections besides of course the limes, you've got yeast and other things that are going to come up. So those are all always issues, and plus the primary issue for the brain not being able to function the way it's supposed to be functioning, the neurological impact is yes. the um, the metals, and secondarily the persistent organic pollutants. Uh, the opportunistics are usually not. That's more from a, a metabolism standpoint, you know, um, uh, byproducts of the bacteria, and that this and that. That if there's going to be an impact to the how the person's brain's functioning, but Certainly anybody with any kind of cause, whether it's temporary or not, of of uh, any type of memory lapse or uh, change in personality or um, thought process, um, wh- whatever it is, medals are always the first place you got to look at. And
1: Yeah. And, well, and 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 Nine and out of
0: ten times, that's what it is.
1: Speaking of the medals, we have a friend of the show who listens all the time and uh, met her in uh, Syracuse, and she, she came to the Advanced Medicine Seminar in Chicago some years ago and met you. And, uh, you know, talking about the heavy metals, um, she got a test, blood, urine, hair uh, analysis done. And, you know, talking about mercury, sometimes you had said over the years that um, the people with the highest mercury often show no mercury in many of these tests, which was kind of a weird thing when you first discovered that. That makes no sense. But she uh, you know she's been paying attention and she went out and got some analysis and it just you see the numbers there we're not going to comment specifically on her case just in general if you were to see something like this, that would be the best way to overview it.
0: yeah I think this is really a, a good question to uh, and the reason is is because there's a couple of points that I want to make about this um, first of all, very very specific it's speciation of the, um, of the mercury first of all so you're looking at inorganic mercury, looking at methylmercury, Um, I think this particular place called uh, Quicksilver Quicksilver Scientific, I think they actually even do tests for ethylmercury. Um, They look at various types of things. Now, there's a very, very detailed um, analysis here, and I don't do this detailed of an analysis, but I'm looking at the mercury, and and I know that may sound sacrilegious to you, uh, to some people, because they know that how focused I am on mercury, but you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those things when you get the fancy instrument and the person comes in or this friend's fancy device and, you know, you're diagnosing the car with whatever problems and then you got the old-time mechanic comes in and goes, I don't know how to use this stuff. and He's better than everybody else, but he doesn't use any of that stuff because right. he just knows he's got his tools and he's used to using his tools. And and I have never done this. I've talked to the the, um, the guy who, um, Chris, I think Chris sure. is his name. I've talked to right. the director of that laboratory and, and I've, I know of their work and um, I think they do good work. I just haven't found a use for it um, from, from the way I do things or the way I interpret the tests. And I think the tests are pretty expensive compared to the other ones that we do. Um, but again, in this particular case, when you look at the, the levels of the urine, the, the blood, and the hair, which, by the way, the blood, I don't know whether it's serum blood or whether it's um, uh, red blood cell analysis, but regardless, you look at this, and I actually also look at fecal uh, and then you see the speciation with the methylmercury, the inorganic mercury, the total sum mercury, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The one consistent pattern that you notice in this, Robert, if you look at it, there's nine different test results. There she has. What is the one thing that stands out that's a unanimous, a common denominator between all all nine levels?
1: Uh, let's see. No, I'm not. I'm not reading it. Other than seeing nothing in the hair, but well, uh...
0: basically that, that's what it is. They're all it's. There's neither nothing there, or it's all well within the normal reference range, which means low, or you know, completely right, nothing right. concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so that point that she brings up, uh, that that uh, she asked that since I've said this before about the non, this is basically the non phenomenon. phenomena. She, she's a non-excreter because she's got issues. Um, it didn't mean for that to sound the way it came out, but she's got
1: um,
0: some health issues, some health
1: concerns. We all have <laughs> I'm not issues. Talking we all about have issues, like Don't right.
0: issues, I'm talking about like not,
1: not like Super Don, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> not like, no, no. Um, so she's got she's definitely got some clinical issues that, that she's uh, mentioned, mm-hmm. and she's also um, got a history of uh, you know, cavitations, um, amalgams. So she's getting certain other things done. She's proactive about her health. She's gone out there. She's done these testing, and nothing shows up. And that, to me, is a perfect example of a non-excreter. This is this is the Karen story on the on the um, heavy metal toxicity, the hidden killer DVD, the know your options that you narrated. Yeah. Um, this is this is that testimony that I gave in front of Congress in two thousand and four. The non-excreter phenomenon. She is it. And I would definitely start um, prophylactic treatment and you know, see where her levels come up, and she said that she's going to, right after cavitation, find a doctor in her local area and start that, and I, I would encourage her to do so. And she will probably see the serial testing will increase the level of mercury in her in her output, um, and she'll start feeling better. And, of course, people are going to say, well, wait a second, how can you feel better when you see more and more level of mercury? Well, you're not putting mercury in the body. You're taking it out. The test right. shows what we're taking out. It doesn't show us what's in the body.
1: Yeah, and, and I remember the whole... Uh context of challenging right when you get these kind of things there would be a challenge test where you would utilize something that would would grab the mercury and pull it out where you'd suddenly detect it uh it, it was it was an aggressive action but it was it necessary in order to validate it for the patient or for you and the treatment what was the reason for that when you kind of see this pattern of non-excretors showing no really no mercury or a level that's acceptable
0: when um, the... I'm sorry, was that a statement or was that a question? Question. So, what what do I hang my hat on to substantiate that he's a non excreter?
1: Well, it, the, I guess the, the question is if you have a patient like this, like most of them show, non-excretors, they do have problems with, with mercury, residual mercury, but nothing's showing up. And so in order for you, to, you know, what you did, you did challenge tests and showed, oh, my gosh, there is a level of, of mercury, there's a burden there, and that helped you to understand, okay, this is what's going on, so you could conclude what you've concluded. But at this point, would you need to do that in order to go to the next phase of mercury detox treatment?
0: Well, that's exactly it, Robert. Um, with the people that like care, story, remember, I kept on testing her, and nothing showed, Yeah. right? I mean, she started showing more afterwards. But like with my son and with many other patients, like the autism, autistic patients, for example, you will not see mercury. It takes sometimes years before you start seeing it come up. In fact, the record for the highest level of mercury and lead is held by the same child, a child from England. Uh, first name is Rishiban. And he, for four years, didn't show anything. In fact, his metal test from the first baseline was probably the cleanest, most pristine. The kid looked like he'd never been on planet Earth. He, I mean, he showed nothing. And in and, and, uh, four years, he started releasing so much. It was unbelievable. His mercury level was 87 micrograms per gram of creatinine, whereas anything above three is considered toxic. And his lead level, which is anything over, I think, five is considered toxic, was uh, 247 or 274 micrograms per gram of creatinine. I mean, that's unbelievable amounts of lead and mercury, especially, you know, we know about the synergism between these metals. You know how LD1 of mercury, LD1 of lead, in the same patient is a LD100. So yes. I'm surprised the kid was still alive. Um, so the point is that the, the, the word, sometimes patients will say, and especially doctors, they say, well, how can you justify, you know, it's not ethical to treat a person um, when you don't have a reason uh, to substantiate the results. Wait a second, where did you go to medical school? Because the first thing we, we learn in medical school is empiric treatment. Empiric treatment means you start the treatment based upon a suspicion that there's an issue going on without having conclusive data. And this is exactly what it is. You start a patient on antibiotics. You do a urine collection. You set it up for urine culture. But you suspect, based upon the typical uh, offending uh, typical offending organism that causes the urinary tract infection, and based upon the patient's symptoms, you start them on empiric treatment. And then three days later, the patient's already better. But now you get the culture and sensitivity test that tells you this is the drug that you should use for this. It's called empiric treatment. We do it all the time. So it's an irresponsible statement for a doctor to say, well, why, can't, why are you treating somebody without knowing exactly what you're treating? Well, because the evidence is clear. They're not showing mercury. They have a history of mercury exposure, and the symptoms that they're exhibiting are typically seen with mercury toxicity. And, oh, by the way, over 25 years of experience has shown me when I start treating that patient, they get better, and here's the, you know, hundreds of patients that we've done this with where we see the patient getting better. And this was the entire basis of the testimony in front of Congress, the sub, uh, U.S. Congressional Subcommittee on Human Rights and Wellness in 2004, uh, when Avi actually went with me to testify, that entire case was based upon Karen, a patient that I had that had showed this, and it was, it was. I mean, you could make a movie out of that, story, out of that clinical history, that case history.
1: Yeah, and, and you answered it very well with the elaboration. That's what I was hoping you'd do, and I appreciate that, because it, it is such a, we've talked about autism we've talked about mercury so many times and you know we we obviously dance around a lot of issues and topics and this question from liberty brought this out in this unique way so if you guys want to see the numbers they're listed right in the show notes she put them out there you don't know her last name so it's nothing like that but it's something she put out there and it's fascinating To look at it, discuss it, and then go back on that and say, you know, why would you? And the way you've related it is so important for other doctors, dear, because this is almost for the medical professionals that are on the fence or working toward this understanding and maybe treatment modality to work with their patients to succeed where others have failed before them or they have failed.
0: Well, I figured that's what you were trying to do, uh, setting me up again. You always (laughs) throw that ball up just perfect so I can come and slam it, but I wasn't sure if that was a statement you were making or you weren't. You know, it was it the was an Olympic where the ball it,
1: was going. It was an Olympic moment. We were just dunking that basketball and nobody could defend against it. So, uh, in fact, I've got to really work on my basketball game because I'm going to be uh, doing an event with Ty Bollinger and some others of our friends in North Georgia. Uh, the last weekend in October in Gainesville, another cancer uh, awareness event that we're going to teach at and we're going to be playing the Harlem Legends in basketball and quite honestly I can run back and forth pretty well up the court but I suck at basketball <laughs> so it's going to be pretty silly uh, I'll just hopefully I'll just keep passing it to Ty and he can dunk <laughs> That's kind of cool
0: I didn't know you guys were going to be doing that, that's awesome
1: yeah, the Harlem legends. That's uh, going to be great. Our buddy Paul Baratero with the Echo Water H2 molecular hydrogen will be up there as well. And, of course, Ty Bollinger will be with us. That means uh, Dr. Batar too, at the Truth About Cancer Ultimate Live Symposium, October 14th, 15th, and 16th in Dallas, Texas. When we come back, we have another question-slash-comment of the day from Janet, and we're going to get to it in just a moment. It's pretty controversial, so you'll want to stick around for it.
0: Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott
1: Bell Show. Well, there's a BBC News article titled, The Villagers Who Fear Herbicides. Those are smart villagers. You want to talk about Zika? No. Talk about herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, larvicides. And you'll understand, you know, the origin of neurological uh, de- degradation in, almost in an immediate sense, an acute scenario like polio. They claimed it was a virus when it was largely DDT and things like that. And it's now the same thing. Cover story, Zika is the virus. There are a lot of cover stories out there, and we gotta we got to uncover them. we got to get through them. And uh, there's a comment of the day from uh, Janet that kind of goes that direction, I think. It says, hi, Robert, Dr. Batar. Uh, Let's see, where are we going with this? Uh, Once in a while, I hear people describe how we are all being experimented upon when referring to GMOs, toxic vaccines, geoengineering, toxic pharma drugs, fluoride, etc. But are they really? My take is that they are no longer experiments, but more like deployments of weapons. They would not experiment on a massive global scale. Experiments are small and have been completed decades ago. No one in their right mind would invest millions, billions, or trillions on ideas that might fail, including those who decide how to waste our tax dollars. Massive depopulation operations are cold and calculated. It doesn't seem like they leave anything up to chance as an experiment. Janet, whoa. That's some heavy stuff there, Dr. Batar.
0: Well, it's not only heavy, but it's extremely um, observant and um, an evolved way of thinking. Now, some people say, how can that be considered evolved? Well, she's not being... um, she, she's not allowing the tribe to dictate her thought process. I actually was mm-hmm. listening to an audio program today um, about this, and we don't have enough time to talk about this, but you know what, what I really like about what Janice said is, first of all, it's, it's accurate. Um, there is no experimentation, and in fact, I can prove that there's no experimentation, and this is cold and calculated. Um, again, we're getting political here, and not that I have a problem getting political, but we may be getting, going out of our, um, I don't know, Robert, you tell me, you pull in the reins or you just... Let the lanes roof, so you tell me which way to go, because
1: well, you know, I have uh, Ty Bollinger on the show once a week, so I think we've already gone beyond the bounds. <laughs>
0: Well, if somebody let Ty out of his cage and actually let him get in radio or get in public that's that's interesting stuff so people, people only see his polished version. they don't see the raw version right. you got
1: to see Ty Bollinger and Dr. Matar get together. That alone is worth the price of admission to come to Dallas, but yeah no, no you're right and, this, and she's right. It's like at a certain point you go, they're not experimenting anymore this is This is engaging in the things they've already experimented with decades and decades and decades ago.
0: that's exactly right, Robert. See, when you look at the movie, and this is, we've talked about this before on the show, but let's just bring it up again. What Janet says can be proven by just one example. If you look at the movie, Mercury Rising, that came out in 1996, 20 years ago, two decades ago, and what that movie was talking about, and what it was trying to tell the general public, which now, 20 years later, it's yeah, nobody. If you talk to the general population, they don't even realize that mercury is still in vaccines. But there was somebody twenty years ago, actually probably twenty-two years ago, that was getting this information that felt that it was necessary to tell a story, make it into a movie, produce the movie, write the movie, produce it, actually get it out to theaters, and it came out in nineteen ninety-six. So obviously, it takes more than just like, oh, I'll get a movie out and tomorrow the movie's out. It probably took a year to plan it, two years to plan it, film it, put it together. So somebody knew the truth back then. And at that time, it was only four years since the National Vaccine Initiative. So somebody high up knew what that orchestrated plan was and that the plan was being rolled out. So I think that there are more and more people like Janet. I I like hearing when people like Janet have written this down with thought process that is that is clear cut, that is not dictated. Some people say, well, this is hyperbole this is um you know paranoia no it's not it's looking at the truth looking at the evidence and seeing what it leads to regardless of which way it leads you are being cognizant enough to recognize the truth rather than sticking your head in the sand saying i can't hear i can't see i mm-hmm. can't smell therefore it doesn't exist so yes i believe that this is way beyond experimentation and and that's one reason that we all need to as robert talks about all the time get off uh, get off the dependency and become more self-sustainable yeah. um learn how to grow our own food, learn how to protect ourselves, learn how to have other ways of uh, dealing with uh, infections and you know, yeah. things that maybe not as detrimental, etc.
1: Yeah, Dr. Bittar, Janet is using something sorely lacking in maybe the majority of Americans. I'm not sure. We'll see what happens, but uh, something called logic. Try logic. it. Try it. It's good. It works. It still works after all these millennia. Dr. Bittar, another great episode of Advanced Medicine. Thank you for being here, my friend. And you know what, Robert, for having me, we got to remind him something. You want to do it?
0: Sure. But the power to heal is unequivocally yours. Yes, it is. The Robert
1: Robert Scott Bell Show.